0: is Pamela Kuhn and the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. I have always been passionate about photography. I yearn for those photos that are steeped in the depth of a moment, held in time, whether it be the simplicity of an Henri Cartier-Bresson photo of life on Parisian streets or the sensation created by photojournalist Robert Capa who set the standard with his depictions of the realism of war. One photo has the power to define a world and record time. Not many of us have lived history through the lens of a camera, but my guest today has. Photojournalist James Hill has been a contract photographer for the New York Times since 1995. Early in his life, he discovered the liberation of encountering the world through a viewfinder of his SLR Pentax P30. He knew that he wanted to capture history as it was being made. And so he has through work in over 30 countries, leading from the front lines in war-torn areas of the former Soviet Union, Afghanistan, and the Middle East. His books include The Castle in Russia's. Moscow, art for architecture, and somewhere between war and peace. Through his work, he has developed the reputation of knowing Russia intimately. James Hill is the recipient of many of photographers' most illustrious prizes, including the World Press Photo, the Pulitzer Prize, the Viador à Perpignan's Visa pour l'image, and the Overseas Press Club of America. On a recent trip to Morocco, I had the good fortune to meet this incredible man of art and realism. And through all of the bitter horror that he has experienced in his work, he has also borne witness to undeniable acts of courage. And believe it or not, he possesses the most fantastic sense of humor to share. James Hill, welcome to Center Stage. It is... Well, thank you very much,
1: Pamela. I think I'm going to retire now because I think it's not going to get any better than that.
0: That is fabulous. Thank you. That's the best part of my day. (laughs) Listen, I understand that early on, you declared your passion for photography. And you mentioned to one of your friends, you know, I'm going to become a photojournalist. I mean, the thing I love about that, and after I met you in Morocco, and uh, it's confirmed, is that there's this sense of um, impulsiveness. And I think there's a power in that sometimes that sets all of us on a certain uh, voyage or journey. Am I right? Is that what well,
1: declared? I think, I think that there are lots of different kinds of people in the world, and I think that I would describe myself as a romantic. Now, what do I define a romantic as? Someone who has hope, ah. despite all the all the things that are out there. This is. I remember when I studied English literature, we I had a teacher who was completely nuts about Chaucer, and He used to love this moment in Troilus and Cressida where Troilus is looking down at all the follies of mankind Mm -hmm. and he laughs. probably should cry, but he laughs. Mm -hmm. And I think that when I have looked back at all the things that I've done in my career, I don't think laugh is the right word, but I've looked back and even in the darkest moments, I've always been surprised by the strength of the human character and that even in terrible moments there is someone who has the capacity to make a joke or the capacity for an act of kindness or the capacity which makes you believe in human nature i'm not sure i'm a very religious person because of all the brutal things that i've seen i have struggled to feel deeply religious i was brought up um in a very Protestant school. We had to go to church every single day. And though I was, slightly, I was banned from singing by the choir master because <laughs> I was a senior I was a senior member of the school and I had to sit up the front. And he said, you can just lip sync, James. That's okay. <laughs> because I really have a terrible, terrible, terrible voice. And And so I just would feel this hope. And also in places where I've traveled. I've always been amazed by the acts of generosity that people are given. You'd go to some family in Afghanistan, they would have very, very little, but nonetheless, they would insist on putting something because you were their guest or when I'd be in other places in the Middle East or in Africa or in Russia too, uh, just the extraordinary kindness, which I've been met 99% of the time when I've been on my travels. And so I've not been disappointed and so when I say I'm romantic, I'm someone who goes traveling hoping that he will find these things. And I have not been disappointed.
0: This is brilliantly said. I love it. I love it. The, the romantic and it is, that comes through. Mm.
1: And it but and it has helped me in my uh in my photography too, because I think that it gives you have to have a hunger for these things. I mean, I've given up the war stuff now because I don't have that hunger anymore. And I think I don't, you have to be hungry for that. Mm-hmm. Because it's very painful to watch, and it's awful to see the pain of others. And then you know, and you can't avoid it somehow seeping into yourself. It's not that you are a complete bystander. It just comes through the lens, through the camera, into you. And so you need to be ready to absorb that. And I think that now I've, I'm not, I'm not so well equipped to do that anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. You've had your time.
1: Yeah, and I did that for a long time. But anyway, also what kept me I hopefully sort of more or less one piece when I came through all of those all those moments was precisely because I was born up not only by the strength of the people who I had been with, but also when I came home, I then had a family to help me through that. But coming back to the original question, I felt a real hunger to go and see the world. Mm-hmm. And I had a hope of what I would find, and I have not been disappointed.
0: So you were an adventurer. I've had many guests on my show, which I've termed architects. I've had many I've termed as adventurers. You, you sound like the true adventurer. I get an inkling of a feeling that perhaps you are like Ernest Hemingway in that sense that you were constantly traveling, wanting to see more to record that moment of time that I spoke about in the intro. Even though some of the things you've seen are ghastly on the front lines, you've, you've experienced so much. But yet these things are an indelible mark in time that you've recorded.
1: Well, when I first went to the former Soviet Union, or sorry, the Soviet Union, because it was still the Soviet Union, because I couldn't speak a word of Russian. I mean, although I went to Ukraine, in those days, very few people spoke Ukrainian, and Ukrainian was really only spoken in the west of the country and in some of the villages. It was more of a, a rural language. In Kiev, it was very, very rare to hear Ukrainian being spoken. And I couldn't speak the language and so it was a terrible handicap, of course, being in a place where you really couldn't communicate. But it motivated me to, to learn. I remember, I think it was Roberto Benini when he gave his his uh his thank you speech at the Oscars mm-hmm. and he thanked his parents for the gift of poverty. Mm-hmm. So what do you mean by that? You know, it meant he was hungry for something. And so I felt linguistically poor when I was in living in Kiev. And it bothered me that I was unable to communicate with the people that I was talking with. And that's one of the great things I got out of living in Russia and in Ukraine and traveling around the former Soviet Union was the ability to communicate. And also people there were so amazed if anybody can speak Russian. Uh, okay, it took me three years to do that. But um, connecting with people, and anyway, it's a bit of a cliche, of course, but that was really part of the great pleasure of being a photographer is that someone was paying you to travel all over these places and (laughs) see these amazing things and go to Central Asia and see beautiful things and meet amazing people. Mm -hmm. And of course, sometimes that you go to photograph amazing people, people of, you know, artists or politicians, people who've made differences to other people's lives as well, um, as well as just ordinary people too. Um, So that, I think, was also one of the great pleasures of being a photographer was the variety of people that I got to meet. So you met people from all kinds of, strata of uh of society from people who were in charge people who were at the very bottom of the social ladder people who made a difference people who were kind people who were not kind people who were brilliant people who were stupid
0: yeah yeah yeah. you yeah. met everybody
1: and i think that was also the richness of the of the encounters was something that mm-hmm. uh and and i was have you know think I've always been quite reticent taking people's portraits. Actually, I mean, sometimes, of course, you're you're assigned a person to photograph, and so you know they know you're coming to take their portrait. But I always find it sometimes difficult when you're just on the street, all stopping people and getting them to take your, letting them take your portrait. Sorry, letting them letting you take their portrait because it feels, I don't know, quite invasive sometimes. It is. Anyway. That's
0: a, that's another question I have for you. Really, in a way, with your camera, you are an intruder on a certain situation. How does that help you how do, or how does that hinder you?
1: Well, I think one of the aspects of being a photographer that I've constantly had to wrestle with and more in a situation which was you know, a conflict situation is what is the position of a photographer? Distance is the most crucial aspect of a photographer. Mm. And why do I say that? Well, because every single photojournalist always has the mantra of Kappa, talking at the back of his head. If he wasn't good enough, you weren't close enough. So in other words, this question of distance is something which is absolutely fundamental to the, to the work of a photographer. At the same time, what is your role? What is your position? So let's say, for instance, you're in a conflict zone. So you have civilians, you have fighters, and you're supposed to be somehow this invisible fly on the wall, somebody who is both physically there but also not there. And to what extent do you let yourself become involved in reacting to what you're seeing? Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: So, In other words, what distance do you let yourself emotionally become uh, engaged with? And I'm not saying that you're taking sides or anything, but simply, you know, what kind of person can you be if you watch someone who is wounded and is bleeding and is in terrible pain?
0: Exactly. Or
1: if you're watching, you know, a mother at the funeral of her son so how do you react in a position like this? Because also people are looking at you and they're saying, well, "What? why is that person there? Why is that person photographing my pain? Hmm. And this has always been an issue to me is that on one hand, you hear this mantra, if he's not good enough, you weren't close enough. So of course it's sort of you're pushing you closer and closer and closer. But at the same time for a mental sanity, you also wondering, yeah. so well hang on you know how close should i be really because how how good is clo- how good is how close is too close for me
0: right. person right right and
1: right. you know my father was a soldier a professional soldier and he would never talk about the things that he had done he'd been in conflict zones and it really bothered me that he wouldn't talk about it but it made me understand as well that what a soldier does and what a photographer does are two very well, clearly very different things. You're not fighting anybody. But just simply the role that you have in that position, you're on a, on a front line somewhere Well, you're just as, uh, you know, likely to get a piece of shrapnel on your leg as exactly. anybody else. Exactly. But at the same time, you're, you're, you're not there. You're just this invisible mm-hmm. person, supposedly. Mm-hmm. And I've always had a problem with that aspect. You know, how how close one should really get. And, yeah. Um, mm. And then what's weird enough, the people that have often stayed with me or the moments of the stay with me has been the most painful are actually the ones where that barrier got broken. So, for instance, once in 1993, I was with some Georgian refugees who were trying to leave Abkhazia over the mountains into Georgia. And on the way, I was with two other photographers and a press guy from President Shevardnadze's office. And we come across this old man sitting on a jam jar. Obviously, been left by his family because they couldn't carry him any further, and it was very cold at night. He was surely going to die that evening, and he saw these four strapping young men, and he asked us if we would carry him, and we said no. I mean, we couldn't have carried him more than about fifty meters. Oh my god! So you know, an entire day to get to the top of this this mountain pass, but at the same time, he 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 shattered that. That glass wall, because he, he he said he said you you're here you're not invisible to me you're here,
0: mm-hmm. and you need
1: to save my life
0: help me mm-hmm. we're just
1: walking on by, so that's what I say about the distance this is the complicated thing, and uh, I've never quite got to grips with that that issue
0: as I understand from your book. This was a, a really, really, um, very dangerous uh, episode in your life. I mean, you you hitched a ride in a helicopter. You landed to give bread to these refugees, I believe.
1: Yes, and... well, of course, you know, when you're young, you're quite stupid. This is an this is an this unfor- <laughs> is a it's a gift. You have to assume it's a gift. In fact, okay, and you have no fear, yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah and it just, and in fact, this helicopter just, it dropped us, and then it took off, and I think it was supposed to take us back, and for whatever reason, a bunch of refugees got on the chopper, and the guys said, I'm not waiting for these guys, and just took off, and we thought probably there's going to be another one coming along, and then, of course, there was another one coming along, and then we saw what the story was. You had to walk with these refugees, and... And
0: your reaction at that point, James? I mean, knowing that a helicopter is not coming back for you? Well, I
1: was, you know, I think I was a little bit... Worried,
0: <laughs> I would think.
1: You know, but ain't, ain't, But you're not alone. Not in the desert. There's water. We had a, we had a little bit of food, not a lot of food. Um, and there was you know there were three of us, except of course this is where my inexperience came into play because the two other photographers had packed sleeping bags because they were the wise. They were the wise virgins. Okay, all
0: right. Mm-hmm. And I was
1: the unwise virgin who had absolutely bugger all except the clothes on his back <laughs> and his cameras. And I remember like sleeping in spoons with this press secretary at night because it was just so effing cold. And then like every half an hour, you just had to stop and go jump up and down because you were literally freezing.
0: Yeah. So now it's survival mode.
1: And um, i mean, never been so happy in my entire life to see the sun appear over the horizon as I was.
0: I can imagine. Those two
1: mornings going over those hills. Because it was imagine. bloody cold.
0: And so you walked off the mountain, literally? So
1: basically it took two days to walk up the mountain. It was 3,000 meters high, the pass, And it was hard yeah. going. And also, we gave away all our food uh, to the people because they literally were starving.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: and I remember, and we got to the top, so we knew we were going down into Georgia. So that was already, you know, that was going down was obviously a lot easier. But we had, I think at that point, we had the, precisely, we had one Mars bar and one small tin of cod liver left. And I... And one of the photographers was a Swiss guy, so he said, and he had a Swiss penknife because he was a Swiss guy, right? So we decided he would be that he would be the Mars bar surgeon. and so, and he had to cut this Mars bar into four <laughs> pieces. And to this day, I'm so convinced I got the smallest piece you know?
0: <laughs> the Mars bar and surgeon that, and really that cod weird. and that
1: cod liver of course, I mean, you know, if someone gave me cold liver and toasted to there, I would probably spit it out. At, yes, you know, Fifty meters, yeah. But there, it just tasted like, tasted, like, tasted like black caviar. I was just, oh my God, it was so good.
0: But when you're desperate, it, it goes down, <laughs> right? Um. So, you know, okay, you got to safety. I mean, you battled the elements. What about the man that was left behind? Does does he linger in your mind? Do you have- Well, that ghost? he's the guy. This
1: is, this is the interesting thing, is that he's the guy that wakes me up at three in the morning. It's not the guys that I've seen- riddled with bullets Mm -hmm. and die in front of me like that because they were there and I was photographing it, but somehow that barrier wasn't broken. Right. It was because he stepped, he, it was like, he, he pierced that bubble. And he says, you're here, you're here. You're not, you're not, you're not as far away from me as you think you are. You're right here and you need to save my life. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And we knew we couldn't save it, but nonetheless saying no to somebody in that circumstance, of course, is, it stays with you.
0: So, James, how do you handle these ghosts in your memory? I mean... Well, I,
1: it's, it's a problem. And that's why I wrote the book, actually, because I wanted my children to have... Uh, not that I examined everything in great detail. I didn't want to be silent to my children. So it was, it was slightly cathartic for me to write that book. I can imagine. Because I just felt like I had, to, I had to put this stuff down on paper. And it took a long time, took me three years to write that book. And I was very lucky because I had this amazing woman called uh, Alice Truax, who was a long-term editor at The New Yorker. And I got to her through a guy called Dwight Garner, who's one of the main uh, critics, literary critics at The New York Times. I don't know him, but I wrote to him because I have all the emails at The New York Times, guys. And I said, this is what I'm doing, and I need some help. And he said, "Uh, you need a book, Dr. James. And I said, well, what the hell's a book done? <laughs> he said, trust me, it's what you need. And this is the woman that you need. And he said, she's probably too busy to, to deal with you or too expensive. And she was she got on board. And it's interesting because she did a two books with uh, Marilyn and Mark and the Dandelion, two greats, two greats of the of Ma- of the Magnum agency. Mm-hmm. And she was interested in the stories. And every morning I would wake her up. I would wake her. I'd ring her at six in the morning, New York time. This is what how crazy Americans are. So she used to be married, and then when she got out of that and she um married a lovely female carpenter called Betsy, who started <laughs> work at like sort of five in the morning or something. We said Betsy would be out running, and then she made the coffee for Alice. So I'd call Alice at six in the morning, and she, you know, it's just this thing you know, people wonder why America is what it is. It's because people work their butts off in America. Because they work, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> I hope that <laughs> remains.
1: is in France. Where we're like, oh, no, no, 12 o'clock. We've got to have our lunch now. Like, where's my <laughs> baguette? You know? <laughs> so, exactly. A
0: little bit and, 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 it took me,
1: and she would, like, say to me, okay, James, you have to rework this because I'm not exactly sure what you're trying to tell me here. Yeah, you know, She basically mm-hmm. trained mm-hmm. me like an Olympic writer mm-hmm. to make everything clear. And it was an, an amazing experience for me to do that book. I mean, it's not, unfortunately. Steinbeck or Hemingway, but it, it's it's as close as I'm ever going to get, which is unfortunately very, 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 very far away. But the process was very important, and it was very healing to me to do it. I'm not saying I'm not I'm not healed, but it's a difference watching that, than you know what a soldier has to go through. It's a completely different level. You know what I've gone through is is nothing compared to I'm people sure. who have absolutely, to go into it. absolutely, uh, or people who are real victims or civilians who put their houses. Or, you know, it's what I've gone through is nothing. Nonetheless, this is these are instances, these moments which you absorb, and you can never really quite filter them out of the system.
0: Absolutely. So when you would come home from these assignments, you had your loving family, your children, your lovely wife, Sylvie. Was was that your sanctuary? And how did they deal with a man who was coming back home who was really altered by these experiences? Well, my wife,
1: I mean, one of the reasons also I ended up giving giving up this the war work was i understood that it was having a much deeper effect to me that i myself was admitting so i remember sylvie saying to me that when i came back it was like going to bed with somebody who was a stranger
0: yeah
1: and i remember when she told that to me it really freaked me out and also my as my children got bigger of course they started to feel afraid when I went to these places. Of course. So what I was saying to you earlier about when you're young, you, you're not afraid. Of course, with age, and when you, you become more afraid, and then when you start to feel other people's fear, then of course, that increases your own. And so I started to feel, I, I started to be aware of my own fear, which had probably been all, all there all along, but simply been suppressed for various reasons. Right. And, and, I, and I know that once you become afraid, then all these things become much harder to deal with, and you lose the hunger to go and do them. And so... I, I mean, there was a particular event that stopped me. Was when I was in Beslan, which was this school in southern Russia that was captured by Russian, sorry, by Chechen terrorists in early September two thousand and four. And I was in France when it happened. I got to Russia. I flew down three days later. Literally, we were supposed to land in Beslan, which is the city where the airport is for Vladikavkaz in. North Ossetia, as we were about to land, the storming happened. We went to another airport far away. We arrived that evening, so we missed all that. And the next day, I was sent out, and I went to all these morgues, and they were just, it was just a carpet of dead children in these on these stretchers with these transparent uh, sheets of plastic. Mm. That really broke something in me, that yeah. vision.
0: But you took some of your finest pictures. Yeah, well, I just thought, you know, it
1: it made me realize that, no, okay, mercifully they were my children, but it could be my children if I lived in Besna, And these were people Mm -hmm. like me with young children, you know, who suddenly had no young children anymore. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And
1: I just felt, I started to feel like a voyeur with that. yeah, And I felt like I don't want to do that anymore.
0: A voyeur who doesn't really want to be there. Well, I mean,
1: you know, I think it's a complicated profession being a war photographer. And uh, some people can deal with it better than others. I have colleagues who are still doing it, you know, and I've been doing it for thirty years, and I'm just astonished by their mental fortitude because I know myself I don't have that.
0: Well, in their physical life, I
1: bailed out a little bit, you know, because I felt like I can't take this any longer.
0: I must say one one of my favorite photos of uh, well, the situation you're talking about in Beslan is the man walking out of the school with the piles of books as if he's trying to save something you know outside of the children now he's he's trying to save history and the written word and uh, it was it's It's a a very very
1: moving picture that one and i i see that and it's interesting what because that was two weeks later after the event and i went back and there's a bunch of very interesting things about about that about that time is i went with a reporter from the new york times called seth midens who was in his early 60s had this sort of shocking white hair his father was Carl Maiden, so legendary life magazine war photographer. He was the guy who took the picture of MacArthur wading on shore in the Philippines, amongst a bunch of oh, other okay, great pictures. Okay. So, first off, he was someone who really understood mm. what a photographer was looking for. So he was amazing to work with. And also, he looked like a grandfather. Yeah. And so people, you know, he wasn't like an aggressive reporter, sort of, you know, pushing people to sort of come out with something, you know, looking for someone to cry and break down on them. He was someone that just sat there and people just poured it out. And when I did the pictures, I was shooting on a Roliflex, on medium format film, and there's only 12, uh, they're in 12 frames on that film. So you've really got to concentrate mm-hmm. when you're taking those pictures, not when we just bang off, you know, 20 mm-hmm. like that. You've got to really make everyone count. And and I remember that guy standing there with the books, as you saying, as if he was in this, Carnage, he was trying to save something sort of something greater, there's like knowledge. In other words, you can kill our children, you can be barbarians, but you can't take what makes us human, what makes us able to talk with one another, what makes us able to rise above this, and to in the end, I'm not saying defeat it because I don't think you can, but somehow to find solace in in the ruins of this, of this, of this moment. And that 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 picture, that guy, it's really a picture which I can, as I'm sitting with you right now, I can see that perfectly. And the certain pictures in the ones that I've taken, which, you know, they're, they're right there because they made a very deep impression on me at the time and they still have power. Because a lot of pictures you get bored with,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, even some of the right. good
1: pictures, you think, yeah, you know, that is a good picture, but, you know, after 10, 15, 20 years, you think, well, you know, it's it's okay. Some pictures still feel very strong, and that's one of them.
0: James Hill has seen death, but also witnessed unbelievable acts of human courage through his camera. Next week on Centre Stage, we discuss his own courage and the details of the moments in history that he is recording with his work but we will also hear about the years he lived in Moscow, his intimate understanding of the Russian and Ukrainian culture, and the technical changes he has experienced in photography over the years. Please go to mjrhill.com or the New York Times website for more information about this incredible man. Also, search out his six books, including Somewhere Between War and Peace. The title speaks for itself. And I invite you to visit Center stage with pamelacoon.com for more shows like this. It is my gesture in keeping the arts rich and alive by introducing and understanding the artists. So until next Tuesday, stay safe out there, everyone. This is Pamela Coon, and the curtain is now down on Center stage.